Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we're talking cross-country murder sprees, cannibalism, gold nuggets, Mormon vigilantes, the bribery of an entire town, and a renegade gold-stealing sheriff who briefly controlled most of the state of Montana. We're heading to the Wild West and the eyebrow-raising tale of Levi Boone Helm, the Kentucky cannibal. Now listen. It seems like you just made it up. You're like, well, let me invent a fake true crime that's perfect for this podcast. Listen, listen. Okay. So okay. I read the book, The Kentucky Cannibal, uh-huh. the true story of an outlaw murderer and man-eater by Ryan Green. Listen. Yes. It was delightful. Okay. I'm not exactly sure it's 100% true. Okay. <laughs> I knew it. It is too good to be true. This st- listen. What? I... Was about halfway through, and I was like, I think he might be making up some of these scenes, uh-huh. like the specificity of some of these scenes. Uh-huh. So I definitely tried to fact check the parts that seem sort of made up. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I don't know, you know, just come, come at me, come romp with me, right? This is mostly true. I really uh-huh. did go and find the news articles uh-huh. that like are parts of you know the story and fact check and most of it was like pretty accurate it's really well written i just you know i noticed that he didn't have a bibliography okay and then i was like <laughs> well you know i was really entertained by this <laughs> i think some of it he totally like had a lot of artistic license with. when was the book written Pretty recently. Oh, it's new school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's really recent. Uh Uh-huh. But this story is like 200 years old. So, you know, most of what you can know (laughs) comes from like legal documents and stuff like that. Stop trying to say it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) No, Muriel, we all know you do your due diligence. Uh, You're getting on my nerves. Okay, well, that's okay because I get to change the subject now with love, Muriel. We're changing the subject with love. Happy birthday to the one and only Paisley T. Paisley, we can't thank you enough for listening to this show from the very beginning and for reaching out to us. You absolutely rule. Happy birthday! Hell yeah. Big shout out also goes to Pop for signing up for our Patreon. Please be like Pop and support this show. We do it all ourselves, and every time you unlock exclusive episodes of Muriel's Murders via Patreon or Spotify, you play a direct part in keeping this podcast strong and independent, and these strong, independent podcasters feeling good. So thank you so much. We also want to thank each and every one of you for engaging with us on your podcast listening app of choice. Every time you press play, hit some stars, add us to a playlist, or write a review, you pump up this show. We've got some beautiful new five-star reviews on Apple recently, and those were left by Serenity Lynn, 
Beacon Hill Transit, Texas Girl 1999, Jessica Lacey, Miss Swan V, and Library Liz L. You all wrote thoughtful, loving reviews, and they lifted us up. So thank, thank you, you very much. We've got some beautiful DMs lately as well, and we're going to thank some of you in the outro today. So stick around after the show for more love bludgeoning. This is a true story, Nick, uh-huh. involving murder, <laughs> violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick... And they don't want to hear about those kind of things. Please consider listening to a different podcast. We deal with the subject matter by talking some trash, joking around a little bit, and sometimes curse words come out. If all of that sounds terrible to you, please turn us off. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. is a story about a man who wouldn't quit. A survivor of blizzards, an escaper of asylums and prisons, an eater of men. Levi Boonhelm came into the world during a snowstorm in a shack in Kentucky in 1828. The family had 11 kids, no money. This was way back in the Wild West days. The mm-hmm. U.S. was a young baby country. There were only like a couple dozen states formed. And the country was, of course, rapidly approaching the Civil War. Uh-huh. So waves of settlers were moving east to west, claiming plots of land as they went. And the Helms got to Kentucky just a beat too late to claim a piece of their own land and ended up living hand to mouth, working other people's farms. Oh, that's rough. It's like finders keepers or whatever. First come, first serve. And I think I just included this little bit because Uh I think that's the theme of this week's episode. Finders keepers, first come, first serve. I'm going to eat you. Okay. Uh, So when new settlements opened up just a bit west in Missouri, the Helms went off to get their peace. So Boone Helm thrived in Missouri, bulking up and becoming a terrific bully. According to Ryan Green, Boone was known for skinning rabbits alive and entering adult boxing competitions as a child where he beat ass. Oh, damn. Okay. So that's like being a bully. But if you can also beat up adults then you're kind of like, that sort of transcends being a bully. Yeah, there's something happening here. I think one of his tricks was riding horseback and like throwing a knife into the ground and then jumping off the ground and picking up the knife and jumping back on the horse without like skipping a beat. Oh, so he's also a ninja. (laughs) Something like that. As he grew older, he was also fairly famous for riding his horse indoors, including that time he rode his horse into the local courthouse to scream at a judge. For issuing a warrant against him. Uh, Boone was somehow able to find a girl to marry in 1848. They did have a kid, a mm-hmm. baby girl, but Boone was so sadistically abusive oh. that his wife divorced him. And at that point, his parents cut contact. Oh, wow. Yeah. And back in the day, you could get away with a lot. Yeah. So if those kind of consequences were coming down your way, you were really dishing out some evil. Yeah. So after his divorce... Boone Helm was aimless in Missouri. He started reconnecting with his distant cousins and attached himself to one in particular. Littlebury Shoot became Boone's drinking partner. Now, Boone Helm wanted adventure, wanted to go further into the Wild West to California or Texas to try and find gold mm-hmm. in them their hills. 
and he wanted a partner. And Littlebury probably saw some trouble in this hulking, drunken, pipe-dreaming cousin and consistently shot down the idea of becoming travel buddies. <laughs> He's like, look, I'll skin rabbits with you in the neighborhood, but that's I'm not going to another neighborhood to skin rabbits with you. Yeah, so one night, Boone decides in a flash of brilliance he's going to get Littlebury really drunk. What's his name? Littlebury Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, spell that out. Are you saying Littlebury? Yeah, Littlebury. How do you spell Burry? L-I-T-T-L-E-B-U-R-Y. Littlebury. Oh, see, you're pronouncing Barry like Burry. And I notice you've done that on this podcast. We've never Little talked Burry? to... That's how you would say you it. Would, you, but you how bear, do you say Burberry? Burberry is spelled B-E-R-R-Y. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but you bury a body. But I feel like you on this podcast say bury a body. I think that you would pronounce this Little Burry. Okay. <laughs> little Barry. Okay. Okay. So sorry. Continue. Oh, my God. I'm doing my job here. Are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> So in a flash of brilliance, mm-hmm. he's like, I'm going to get Littlebury drunk and get him to shake on it. And then we'll go part lo- part- partner up and, and start a new life in Texas. <laughs> so the sadistic, horrible man just really values the the word is bond of a good handshake. So the next morning, he showed up at Littlebury's house to pick him up and nothing's packed. Uh-huh. The hungover cousin's like, sorry, dude, I'm absolutely not going with you. <laughs> so Boone Helm stabbed him to death no. and then ran off into the woods. So Boone knew that he had been heard all over town running his mouth about going to Texas. So mm-hmm. his plan was to be slick and go to California instead. It was like coin toss, right? Okay. R.I.P. Little Barry. Okay. So now Boone Helm really didn't know much outside of this small town bully life. And one thing he really didn't know about was how to prepare to ride 2,000 miles from Missouri to California through the great untamed wilderness. Yeah, right. So he brought enough water for two days <laughs> and no extra food for himself or his horse. Okay. <laughs> so instead of like bolting out across the country to gold rush paradise, Boone basically wandered through the woods in search of places to fill his tiny water jug. So instead of being able to go forward, he had to just keep kind of circling back to fill up his water jug. <laughs> He tried hunting, zero success, and eventually his horse became too weak to ride. Mm. So Posse tracked Boone Helm through the wilderness, following him in these crazy circles, right? Being like, (laughs) what is this guy doing? Until they found him many Uh days later in a clearing, railed thin and starving, trying to suck water out of a muddy riverbank with his dead horse tied up to a nearby tree. Think about what that would look like. Yeah. That's a crazy visual. I think like when we think about the Wild West, uh-huh. we really do think about, you know, cowboys and da 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 da. But a lot of it is just miscalculations and dying in the woods. You're just sure. talking about all these people going from the east to the west across this continent. And of yeah. course, like going through people already live there. Native Americans already live yeah. there. So you're going through all of these like tribal lands and totally things that have never been touched. You know, and you think you can find a stream and then all of a sudden there's just no stream (laughs) ever, right? just sucking on mud next to a rotting horse. So sorry. And the posse, it's a posse from town because everyone knows he killed his cousin. Yes. Everybody knows he killed his cousin. They're like, Boone is a huge jerk. Yeah. And they all kind of 
could hear him talking about wanting to go. And it was a big thing that people knew that Little Burry also was just very reluctant. Got he it. was a Debbie Downer. He uh-huh. was saying, no, oh yeah, maybe, maybe, <laughs> right? It looked like a something that would boil over. Right, right. Getting Boone back to town was a challenge. He was delirious. He kept running off into the woods until they finally tied him up and threw him over the back of the sheriff's horse. And the posse spent a tense night as they were coming back, taking turns watching Boone, who just spent the whole night muttering under his breath and freaking everybody out. Mm -hmm. When they got back to Missouri, everyone thought he was way too crazy to hang, meaning not to hang out, but to hang him, Uh uh, that he had lost his mind in the woods and wasn't fit to stand trial. So he was examined by a doctor and committed to a mental institution, ending the saga. Mm. Just kidding. (laughs) Boone was totally faking it. At the sanatorium, he was totally wonderful for the first time in his life, like chill, compliant, an asylum darling. They prescribed him exercise in the garden and snuck him cigarettes and at night there was this friendly orderly that would come and take him out of his cell and take him for walks around the garden and they'd share cigarettes oh no muriel so one night no boone asked the orderly for permission to take a pee in a nearby stand of willow trees and with permission he walked off into the dark night and disappeared. Oh, good. I thought he was going <laughs> to kill the nice orderly. So the orderly would okay. take him out. He was like, didn't say anything because he super wasn't supposed to be doing that. Yeah, right. He didn't want to get busted, right? Yeah. So he didn't say anything. And then no one noticed that Boone was missing for days. And when they finally did notice, it was too late to mount a search party. Plus, they were so far away from any nearby town it was just woods around there Mm -hmm. and boone they thought was such a crappy survivalist that they assumed he was already dead (laughs) yeah yeah totally just go to the nearest creek he'll be out there with his face in the mud well guess what what he wasn't dead not by a long shot he was on his way to california now we're gonna piece this together i think it's mostly based on boone's own personal stories of like what he did Mm -hmm. But the idea is that he survived by murdering other solo travelers and taking their stuff. So there were so many solo travelers going to the gold rush. He was basically able to stock them down and take their stuff. And the story goes that it started with him sneaking outside of the asylum and then beating a prospector with a rock to death in the woods and taking his supplies, donkey, and guns, and just heading out. And then he continued on. He didn't want to be caught again, so he was taking the back routes for hundreds of miles, just lurking in the bushes, and he would pop out and shoot solo travelers from a long distance away so they couldn't see him. Oh, he's just sniping people in secret. Right, and then run up and raid their supplies. I feel like I believe all this just based on movies I've seen. Yeah, right. I mean, I think there's allusions to this and different like accounts. So what I tried to do is go mm-hmm. back and find old newspaper articles. And then I read like excerpts from a couple of older books like that are more like 100 years old mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. Western vigilantes and stuff like that. 
So they all corroborated the same stories, but a lot of them were like, I met Boonhelm one time and he told me this. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah, totally. Well, it just seems like there's movies where these archetypes are drawn from. Yeah. So there must have been some people really doing that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My point is, is in from my perspective, all of your research holds up, Muriel. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> So as the winter rolled in, the hunting dried up. Eventually, Boonhelm ran out of food. He ate his donkey. And then one day, from a distance away, Boom nailed a hunter, hoping that the man had some game on him. So he runs up to the body. The hunter has no food, no game. So Boone built a fire, skinned the man, and then roasted a piece of his body over the fire. There's no food. Right. There's nothing going on. He's literally starving. So... You know, a lot of people actually in this story are like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, of course. I mean, killing him is the is the horrible thing. Eating him is the only thing that makes sense. (laughs) Right. I think. I don't don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think people are like, yeah, man, that's crazy (laughs) because it's Wild West is actually like really crazy. Totally. Now, this is another one of these things that. I think that he did eat his first person on this big cross-country thing. Mm-hmm. Green describes it as he took a bite and then was so hungry he kept eating, grabbing piece by piece throughout the night. And then when the dawn broke, there was just a well-fed boon and then this body that was full of holes. He had just randomly taken chunks of meat out of this guy's body. Okay, so that's an example of a scene that <laughs> is like the up. author, you read it and you're like, how does, what? How does he know that? Uh-huh. Well, you know, whatever. Okay. So I tried to cut most of those out. But soon his time in the wild had come to an end. With Missouri far behind him and no chance of being recognized, Boone Helm left the backwoods and emerged on the main road, fueled by human flesh and carrying an obscene cache of stolen guns. Back in civilization, Boone traveled, uh, traded some rifles for a horse and food and joined the rest of the hopeful frontiersmen crossing the border into California. Mm. Ooh, baby. (laughs) Turns out the gold rush was heaven for old Boone Helm. It was a whole lot of boozing, gambling, and fighting. And as soon as he entered California, Boone caught word that he had some distant cousins in the area who were also huge buttholes. It was John Ham and William Johnson. They were distant enough relatives that they hadn't heard of his earlier cousin killing thing. Okay. So he, they all embraced the skeletal whiskey soaked, hard bitten wild man that had just come out of the woods. Yeah. With 95 guns and a lot of different men's raccoon hats. Kind of. Yeah. Right. right? Boonhelm delighted his cousins with his stories about killing so many men. He had to start eating them. (laughs) The three cousins all had claims up in the mountains that provided them with enough gold dust to keep them swimming in liquor. So you get a claim, right? It's just Uh a stake that you would have up where there could be gold right. and you would go and work your claim during, you know, when it wasn't snowing basically sure. and then come down and, and yeah, get your money. Yeah. Right. The plan they came up with was for Boone to rotate working through his cousin's claims and then save enough money to buy his own claim. Mm-hmm, so they mm-hmm. would share the gold with him. 
This really didn't pan out, though, because Boone wasn't going to do anything that he didn't want to do, which equaled his cousins working while Uh he watched like a psycho from the corner (laughs) and then took half the money. (laughs) Also, his cousins were kind of stupid and terrible with money and spent it as soon as it touched their fingers. Uh So their hot cousin summer plans turned into losing half their money to Boone (laughs) and then drinking away the rest of it. Uh, gold poor and liquor rich yeah eventually the cousins got tired of all of boone's mooching so they got together to try to come up with another plan but he was too wild right boone Mm -hmm. would probably shoot them if they were direct and asking him to leave right and tricking him could work he wasn't super smart but neither were they (laughs) (laughs) if he he figured out that he'd been tricked he would definitely shoot them Uh so they were really worried about getting shot gotcha turned out they didn't have to do anything boone helm ended up being a bit too wild for the wild west boone had gotten into one too many bar fights shot one too many people and blew up his spot so the law started poking around and boone hightailed it north to Oregon. Turned out, Oregon was even more awesome <laughs> for a person like Boone Helm. Forget mining your gold like a chump. In Oregon, Boone found a steady stream of men carrying gold north from California to set themselves up with farms and livestock. Oh, right. So he just robs them. The robbing scene was really great. Oh, it's robbing season. (laughs) This is great. Yeah, it's funny. It's like during the gold rush. Yeah, sure. You can sell pickaxes or you can just rob the people going to Oregon. (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely talking about those guys in this story. (laughs) Through bragging and nefarious deeds, Boone was like a magnet for other jerks. And soon he had a little jerk gang of highway bandits. They robbed and murdered and terrorized small towns up and down the main roads in Oregon, murdering people, tossing their bodies off the road to just rot in the open, and then often burying their gold caches like all around the road to come back and get later. Mm. When they got enough cash together, Boone and his gang would descend on a town, get wasted, and wreak havoc. (laughs) But eventually, it took a while, but local law enforcement started doing the math. They had this gang of stinky road dudes with more money than God. And then also all these scattered remains of dead miners piling up around town. They started to arouse arouse suspicion. Mm -hmm. And once again, it was too hot. And it was time for Boone to move on. In the fall of 1858, Boone and a few of his buddies, five or six, decided Utah would be the perfect place to go next. There were rumors that a gold rush was coming to the area. So what is now called Virginia City, Nevada, was back then a part of the Western Territory of Utah. And in a matter of months, it would be known as the site for one of the biggest silver and gold deposits in U.S. mining history called the Comstock Lode. Mm. <laughs> there was a, also a big copper mine in Bingham Canyon just outside of Salt Lake City that had just been discovered around like 10 years earlier in 1848. So lots of good people to rob. 
that combined with the steady flow of miners coming from the east and passing through Salt Lake City to California. So it meant lots of gold, lots of money, and lots of chaos to capitalize on. Also, Boone and his gang only had a misty, childlike grasp of Mormonism and polygamy uh-huh. and thought they were heading into Orgy Town, USA. <laughs> So, once again, Boone went out into the wilderness. He and his gang set off for Camp Floyd. It was a brand new military outpost installed to suppress an anticipated Mormon rebellion. Camp Floyd, the copper mines, and Salt Lake City were all a stone's throw from each other. Wait, so sorry. Who's anticipating a Mormon rebellion? What's going on? So, there... (laughs) In 19, I think, 57 Uh through 58, there was the Mormon War, the Utah War, where the Mormons fought the federal government over not, I think it was like over not letting Brigham Young be the governor. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh But anyway, they got into a big old fight. So so there was a time in this country where they thought Mormons were going to, or they did, they, they like took up arms and like. Fighting each other, Fight, man. Fought the government. Yeah, they are going into Utah pretty much as this war is wrapping up. And they know that Camp Floyd should be this big military outpost. Gotcha. So anyway, the plan was to head southeast from northern Oregon through Idaho and into Utah. There's a letter that we're going to reference that we get most of this information from. Mm-hmm. And then there's a few books and i i think this is what happened okay okay the group was planning to travel through the flat low elevation areas in the southeastern part of oregon but they quickly found themselves when they crossed over in paiute tribal lands and this is a place where they were just absolutely not welcome according to boone what followed was an ambush followed by an hours-long galloping horseback gunfight with the Paiutes. So nobody really knew how to shoot on horseback in this crowd on either side, (laughs) and everyone's guns were really dirty and Uh, not well-maintained and mm -hmm. old-timey, right? Right. So the shots were pretty much all extremely wildly off target, (laughs) like a scene from Blazing Saddles. So Uh hours later... At sundown, no one had been shot on either side, but this stray (laughs) bullet took down one of the Paiute leader's horses. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of held off, right, to check on each other. And the king was able to get away filthy, exhausted, and down to their very last bullets. That night, the gang set up camp next to a river, and even with two men standing guard all night, a Paiute warrior was able to slip into camp undetected and murder one of Boone's men, Mm. just totally silently. Yeah. So Boone and his guys were in a pretty gnarly spot. They were way off course, being successfully hunted down, and also some suspicious clouds were starting to form in the horizon. Oh, literal clouds. Yes. Okay. So they had miles to go in Paiute territory and realized they were never going to make it through alive unless they retreated to higher ground up in the mountains. So they decided they were going to go right up in these wild hills 
Inside the hills, they lost all sense of direction. The forest was so dense, they couldn't really even see any landmarks like the hills over there right, or yeah, yeah. flat ground, right? And then the snow came in. <laughs> Got to start eating each other. That, Here we go. <laughs> that year, an early winter dumped feet and feet of snow on the mountains. They were mostly in completely white out conditions, slowly pushing east, eating through all their supplies until they eventually hit Bear River. And this was their first and only visible landmark. So they followed it to where they knew a little settlement town was, a place called Soda Springs in the Idaho Territory. It was hundreds of miles from where they started off in Oregon and almost 200 miles from Salt Lake City. Desperate for food, they dragged themselves into town and were met with completely shuttered dark buildings. So this settlement had closed down early for this early winter Mm -hmm. and the people had taken every provision, every bit of food with them. So Boone and the gang were forced to keep going, following Bear River, which was the only thing they could see in the snow, to the next town over. I just feel like I can't imagine people who deserve to march into their own nightmare more than these guys. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So unfortunately, this section of Bear River was leading them actually away from Salt Lake City, taking them almost 50 miles east in the wrong direction. Mm. They got to the next little settler camp in Thomas Fork, and it had also been shuttered for the winter. So it was obvious they couldn't go any further, so they hunkered down in an empty cabin to try and survive through the winter. By now, Boone had spent time starving in the woods, right? But these other guys were used to terrorizing towns. They hadn't dealt with anything. Yeah, this is their first rodeo. Yeah. That's crazy to be trapped out there and you realize one of the people you're with is a demon who's lived through this and like tasted human flesh before. And they know he has because he's bragged about it. They're like, he's really, this is something that happens with him. Yeah. He's, they're like, oh, he's really badass. Let's bring him into our gang. And he's like, yeah, do it. I dare you. It's just like, obviously he's going to do that to you. So Boone had been through all this before. And while his buddies were kind of setting up camp as if they were going to live through the winter in this place, Boone didn't unpack a thing and check the weather every day. He knew if they stayed in the cabin all the way through winter, they would all starve to death and he was going to push until he found a town. So the snow drifts outside, the weather didn't break, the snow drifts got huge, and the gang gets bored, and they start getting bitchy after the whiskey is gone, there's tension. Yeah. Boone led the group in eating the last of the horse's oats, and then the horses, one by one, and it starts to dawn on them like what kind of trouble they're in. Yeah, what comes next? (laughs) After killing the last horse, Together, they dried some of the meat and then used the hide to make snowshoes. They were going to have to backtrack up Bear River, past Soda Springs, through the blizzards, north to Fort Hall, where there was bound to be people and food. That was a different fort. The whole journey would be around 115 miles on foot. Horrible. I wouldn't want to do that just in my new hokas. (laughs) You know, get my little shorts on and hat, some sunscreen. Here. And go 150. Hell You'd no. literally never be able to do no. that. I mean, hell maybe no. Maybe you would. That's mean. 
I mean, I would be able to do it, but I wouldn't want to. No, I wouldn't want to. And I I definitely couldn't do it. What they're talking about, some homemade snowshoes with your your previous best friend in the world is now your shoes. I love that you're worried about the shoes and not the food. Well, the food is part of it. I mean, just saying the whole thing. (laughs) That's how far away my brain is from being able to wrap my mind around the reality of it. It's like I don't even think of the food. I'm just like, what are you wearing? Did you get some Gore-Tex? Where's the closest REI? Let's get some North Face going here. So they go up the river, and by the time they get back to Soda Springs, all but one of the outlaws was snow blind. So that's basically getting a sunburn on your eyeballs. Really? Yeah. Whoa. And everyone is starving. Does that heal? Yes, it does heal. Okay. But you can really lose, you can lose, I think, a significant portion of your vision. That's drastic. They made it just past Soda Springs when the men started falling behind and losing their bearings. Boone left the men wandering out in the snow to die and kept going with just one man, Burton, trailing behind him. So Burton and Boone walked independent, but together, eating snow and horse jerky as they went. They didn't sleep because they'd freeze to death if they stopped. Just as they got to Fort Hall, Burton collapsed in the snow and Boone just kept on trucking. And... Fort Hall was also totally empty (laughs) and abandoned for the early winter. No Uh, food, no supplies, just dark buildings. This is their third strike and they are out. So all of this information of this winter journey so Mm -hmm. far comes from a letter from a man named John W. Powell addressed to an N.P. Langford. And it's been reprinted in a few books and stuff like that that survived the time. But this is the letter, right? Mm -hmm. Powell says he ran into Boone Helm near Fort Hall in April 1859 after the snow had cleared. So right after the winter. He wrote that he had just finished pitching his tent when he heard a man shout, who owns this shebang? And there, Powell says he saw, quote, a tall, cadaverous, sunken-eyed man standing over me, dressed in a dirty, dilapidated coat and shirt and drawers, and moccasins so worn that they could scarcely be tied to his feet. So according to Powell, Boone told him all about the gunfight and their harrowing time in the snowy mountains, how his men had been lost in the snow, and how he and Burton were the only ones to make it to Fort Hall alive. Boone told Powell he dragged Burton half alive into an abandoned house where they set up camp. Then one day while Boone was out gathering wood for a fire, Burton shot himself in the head with a pistol. Mm. Boone said that he decided to cut off Burton's other leg at the thigh, strap it to his back and head out to find Salt Lake City alone because Apparently, he had already eaten Burton's other leg. (laughs) While he was still alive, that means. Maybe before he shot himself. Right. So the exact quote in the letter is, quote, he heard the report of a pistol running back into the house. He found Burton had committed suicide by shooting himself. He then concluded to try and find his way into Salt Lake Valley, cutting off well up in the thigh Burton's remaining leg. He had eaten the other. Whoa. He rolled the limb up in an old red flannel, tied it across his shoulder, and started. Okay, so that sentence, you can interpret that either way. Yeah, right. So you don't really know how that... 
Is that like a different f- term or something? A cannibal that if I eat you, but you're still alive, you know, like, Ooh, just give me that arm and I keep you alive and keep and eat you. I think cannibal is just referring to like eating someone, eating part of someone who's otherwise still alive is, is worse. That's way worse. <laughs> That's way worse. <laughs> According to Powell, the leg eating thing was actually corroborated with a Native American who had ran into Boone a few days earlier Mm -hmm. and seen the partially eaten leg strapped to his back. Mm. So he was like, somebody else said he saw the leg. Uh Powell said Boone begged him to take him along to Salt Lake City and then he was totally broke. So Powell gave Boone some clothes and a horse to ride and escorted him down to Salt Lake City. On the way, Powell found Boone's hidden sack of gold coins worth $1,400, which is like 50000 in today's money. Uh-huh. So that amount of cash mixed with this whole cannibal story thing made Powell realize that Boone was more than likely a complete maniac <laughs> yeah. and something really wild had gone down in Fort Hall that winter. Yeah, he's just a demonic outlaw. Yeah, so he finished the letter with, quote, I called him to me as soon as we had reached the end of the journey and handed him his money saying, you can now take care of yourself. He coolly put the coin in his pocket without expressing a syllable of thankfulness for the assistance I had rendered him. (laughs) It was not long until he had squandered all he had in gambling and drinking and was finally expelled from Salt Lake Valley for his atrocities. (laughs) You'd think he'd be chill for a minute, you know? All right, so Salt Lake City, Utah, spring of 1859. There's a lot of stuff going on over here. So okay. the Mormons had settled the area mm-hmm. looking to set up a polygamous utopian paradise led by Brigham Young. And they had settled in the Salt Lake Basin, which happened to be the safe zone between two extremely warring tribes. So they put themselves up right between the Shoshone and the Utes. Okay. So there was already some tension, right? (laughs) I would say so, yes. And they had recently went to war with the federal government the year prior during the Utah War. Everyone's fighting. (laughs) So when Boonhelm came to town, the place was pretty wild. There were thousands of migrant miners, and then they're attending saloons and brothels, and then a whole separate Mormon community. And there was a particular type of lawlessness going on. Whatever there was of local law enforcement didn't interact or protect the Mormon community at all. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I didn't know this, but I guess Mormons actually had a history of using vigilante groups for their own private protection. So back in 1838, Mormons started this oath-sworn vigilante group called the Danites, the Webster definition is uh, a member of a secret association of Mormons held to have been pledged to use violent means to destroy their enemies. So by 1859, the Danites weren't supposed to exist anymore. They were totally saying, oh, that was just a one-time thing. <laughs> that was an oopsie. Yeah. Actually, the Danites, I think, started as a self-policing group. So they were all about policing not like other Mormons who are non-compliant sure and then it sort of flipped to be a protective group because they're moving through the country from east to west totally and people were not super friendly Mm -hmm. they were a series of wars (laughs) 
Anyway, by 1859, the Danites weren't supposed to exist anymore, but apparently there is some shadowy history of Mormons and Brigham Young continuing to use private enforcers into the 1850s. Like, for instance, when they went to war with the federal government, yeah, yeah. there's some quotes of him being like, rise up, my shadowy figures. <laughs> you know, there's some sort of, oh, we have a militia kind of talk in that. Gotcha. All we know is Boone came to town, got drunk at a saloon, gambled away his money, and then started acting like a huge asshole, his classic move. Sure. And then (laughs) his time in Salt Lake City abruptly ended when he murdered two well-known troublemaking miners in broad daylight and was run out of town. Mm. So the leading theory is that he may have been contracted by some high-ranking Mormons to handle the worst of the disruptive miners and then was less subtle than they thought he would because <laughs> it did seem pretty outrageous even yeah. for Boone to just murder two strangers out in the open uh-huh. on the same day like almost as if he had free reign to do so sure sure at any rate his long journey to Salt Lake City had resulted in absolutely nothing <laughs> and he was back in the goddamn wilderness again <laughs> his body count keeps going up it's a he's killed a lot of people at this point We lose Boone here for a bit. Ryan Mm -hmm. Green believes that he spent some time with a militia in Colorado developing his well-known passion for the Confederacy. The next time we see Boone pop up is in April 1862 in Oregon, where he made it a thousand miles or so back to his old stomping grounds. The golden boy was back in the Pacific Northwest. Boone Helm, the prodigal son, had returned. This time he was in Florence, Oregon, on the coast. And Florence was a mining town, but a bit more romantic than others. More like the movies, more built up and hospitable. You had your saloons and what have you, but you also had your howdy neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't the hard-bitten, corpse-strewn Oregon (laughs) Boone knew and loved. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> so this is what, how we know he was in Florence, right? This is an article in the Walla Walla Statesman. It reads, Florence, April 1st, 1862. Quote, a shooting array occurred here on Sunday in the well-known saloon of Ben Anderson. One of the parties, a gambler who passed by the name of Dutch Fred, was shot and instantly killed by a man bearing the name of Bernhelm. <laughs> It's a better name for him. (laughs) Uh, An old and hardened villain. It is well known Mm. that this is not his first act of the kind. Persons are out in search of him. Okay, yeah. So he's he's building a reputation. People know him. Like he can go all around the country. Yeah. Come back to Oregon. They're like, oh no, Burnham, (laughs) he's back. (laughs) Just like a game of telephone. Yeah. So apparently, according to Ryan Green. Boone, for one reason or another, had a hair up his butt about this guy, Dutch Fred. So he busted into Ben Anderson's saloon, waving a gun around, looking to kill Dutch Fred, who was at a table playing poker. Dutch got up with a Bowie knife, and the good people of Florence took one look at the situation and tackled both men to the ground. The men were disarmed, and they were allowed to brawl 
if they wanted, but no stabbing or shooting, okay? Okay. And then the weapons were handed over to the bartender for uh-huh. safekeeping. Okay. Until everybody cooled down. Yep. As a bartender, that's happened to me many times. <laughs> so Dutch Fred was huge. Boone was tough as leather, but smaller. Plus, he had had a series of bouts with starvation out in the wilderness, so he didn't have a lot of heft to him. Mm-hmm. And after sizing Dutch up, Boone apologized for being rude and left the bar. <laughs> And Dutch went back to playing cards. Boone left, but then he came back a few hours later, angrier and drunker, to get his revolver and promised that he was leaving town, apologizing, bowing and stooping. Uh And then he turned and shot Dutch Fred dead. And from there, of course... That was not cool for anybody. Uh-huh. It's like Dutch wasn't even armed, right? Mm-hmm. So from there, he just took off like a shot, took off for Canada with a posse hot on his trail. The man is nonstop. <laughs> yeah, this is, what, this is what Hamilton should have been about. Come on, Lin-Manuel Miranda. I stop myself so many times. <laughs> it's like, you're such a... <laughs> How does he shoot everybody that he meets? How does he eat all the people in the streets? That's pretty good. <laughs> Damn it. It writes itself. Uh Boone made his way 800 miles. God damn it. 800 miles north through British Columbia by July 1862. And by then he picked up an unnamed road buddy, maybe a part of the militia. He tends to like pick up people that he can eat in a pinch. Right. (laughs) That's a good thing about a friend, you know, Mm -hmm. friend today, meal tomorrow. Just outside of Barkerville and Antler Creek, now we're in British Columbia, they stopped at a bunkhouse. So this is pretty far north, way out in like the wild. Mm-hmm. They stopped at this bunkhouse, and that's like an old-timey motel, basically. And from there, Boone was able to tap into a familiar setup. Through eavesdropping, he learned that miners in the area were coming down from their claims in the mountains with pockets bulging with gold dust and passed through this bunkhouse area on their way to the banks in the larger southern towns. And of course, Boone was fixing to do some robbing and a murdering. (laughs) There were two groups of miners coming through Antler Creek heading towards Canal Forks on July 18th, 1862. The first a couple of savvy road travelers, W.T. Collinson and Irish Tommy. He has other names, but I like that one. Uh-huh, sure. They had sacks of gold dust, which was actually really valuable, but they also had these decoy purses of coins to throw off any road bandits. So they were sewing the gold dust into these pockets. And We've all done bags. that. Yeah. You know, coming home from after a night of bartending. Sticking a money in your sock, man. Yeah. Keep a couple ones in your pocket, you know, maybe throw a f- couple tens in that bundle too. I used to split my bank cards. Yeah. Put one in my purse and then one in my pocket. So yeah. Really mug me. They'd just get my wallet, but they'd only get half my cards. <laughs> ah. So there were those guys. And then there was a trio of miners who had almost comically overloaded their horses and mule with bags of raw gold. So these animals were barely able to walk Mm -hmm. and the two savvier guys were like oh man you should have just used the gold to buy like one more horse and then you could go faster and (laughs) this wouldn't be so obvious yeah right (laughs) but for part of the day the two groups traveled together and then halfway to canal forks the trio of miners set up camp and called it a day the animals were really tired the men wanted dinner and they just kind of camped out out in the open 
Collinson and Irish Tommy were a little more aware of the danger of what they were doing, so they decided to head up further and pick a secluded place to camp for the night about three miles ahead. And that night, Boone popped up like a bat out of hell and shot the trio of men to death along with their poor mule and horses, mm. a total unnecessary massacre on lots of levels. Wow. Like, you can h- hold someone up at gunpoint and take their money right right and back then you wouldn't shoot the horses you know a lot of the time people would hide behind the horses because the horses were valuable yeah but he just kind of shot everyone without a word yeah he's a murdering uh you know uh demon i don't know i keep saying demon but there's no better word i think yeah well and he was a bit short-sighted now boone had no way of carting off any of the gold right it was just too much gold allegedly about thirty two thousand dollars worth so that would be close to a million dollars worth of gold in today's money. Wow. So they left the miners and horses dead on the side of the road. And then they dug a deep hole and buried the gold somewhere around Keithley Creek. It was enough for both men to live well for the rest of their lives or enough for Boone Helm to live like a king after potentially eating his partner in crime. <laughs> Allegedly... That gold yeah. still remains there to this day. Ooh. Nobody has found it. Okay, Green, author Green. Is that a freaking... Uh, do other people think it's still out there? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 there was a different article that came out in the 90s. That said it was from wow. the area that was like, gold's never been found. That's cool. Yeah. Boone, I mean, somebody easily could have gone and dug it up and say, stole it. And then sure. just not said anything, which is what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Boone and his man continued on to Canal Forks, passing Irish Tommy and Collinson sleeping hidden in the woods like babies, and then finally landing at another bunkhouse at the Forks for some sleep. The next day, Irish Tommy and Collinson made it to the Forks bunkhouse just in time to see the bodies of the trio of miners dragged into town. And Collinson was like, guys, we know these guys. And they had a ridiculous amount of gold as of yesterday. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, there's no gold. (laughs) So... While Boone and his bandit pal were sleeping in past lunch, the whole bunkhouse was up in arms trying to figure out who killed the men. And then a few hours later, a breathless horseman from Antler Creek rode up to the bunkhouse to announce that the notorious Boone Helm had been sighted in the area. So sound the alarms. They're starting to put two and two together. (laughs) Math is coming out, right? Okay. A $700 bounty was put on Boone's head, and by his description, they all slowly realized that that man was sleeping in the very same bunkhouse. So this young, broke bunkhouse boy took up the call, and he busted into Boonehelm's room, guns blazing, but Boone and his partner had already snuck away. The dude is nonstop. <laughs> so a posse set off, in the direction of the nearest U.S. border to intercept them, thinking they're going back to the U.S., Collinson and Irish Tommy pushed off in a hurry south to deposit their gold. And then, just days later, right before they were about to catch a ferry into Victoria, B.C., Irish Tommy and Collinson were robbed at gunpoint by none other than <laughs> Boone Helm, who jacked them for their decoy coin purses. <laughs> Boone was playing 3D chess. (laughs) 
He wasn't going to escape back into the U.S. He was going to go kick it in Victoria. In Victoria, B.C., Boone Helm was still incognito. No one recognized him. He and his travel buddy landed at the Adelphi Saloon. They played it super cool. He opened a bar tab and apparently got himself a bunch of fruit and settled in to get drunk, eat fruit, and play cards. Sounds fun. But after losing hand after hand, he was out of cash and big mad. Boone thought he could get out of paying his tab by announcing his identity and scaring everyone into submission. But they just got the police sergeant and Boone was immediately arrested. So this sergeant finally totally recognized Boone Helm's name, you know, specifically from American rumors of this killer terrorizing the Pacific Northwest. Who's acting exactly like this. Like, you'll know him. He shows up to the saloon. He loses all of his money. He throws a big fit. He wants to shoot whoever won the game or whatever happens. That's exactly that, right? The sergeant knew he could only legally hold Boone for a few days before trying him. So he just goes straight to work. He writes a ton of letters a flurry of letters and sends them to folks all around British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest, announcing Boone's capture and seeing if others wanted to extradite him or press charges or whatever. But it's the olden days and letters were taking forever. And then plus, a lot of the towns were still empty because people were up in the hills digging for gold. Yeah, for or the maybe season. the mailman also got robbed yeah. you know, or eaten. So no word came to the jail. Sure. And meanwhile, meanwhile, Boone got an expensive lawyer. His lawyer was excellent. And since they didn't have any evidence to hold Boone for anything other than an unpaid bar tab, his bail were set for $50. He had to pay $50 or I think 30 days hard labor. Mm-hmm. Everyone assumed Boone would easily make bail given his expensive lawyer, but he didn't have any money. He just lied to the lawyer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he was sentenced to a month on a chain gang to work off the bar tab, the fruit, and then his legal fees. Okay. <laughs> Those nectarines were expensive back then. Yeah, and now they had a month for the Americans to respond to his letters. Mm-hmm. Well, it took more than a month. Boone served his time and was released into the wilds of Canada. And then, about three days later, an extradition request came from the U.S. to Victoria. Sure. (laughs) So during his stint in the chain gang, Boone impressed a fellow inmate with his tales of murder and cannibalism. Dirty Harris was the leader of a pack train. That's a freight-hauling wagon train that can get into places where heavy machinery can't. So not an actual train, but like a wagon train. And they were both released at the same time. And Dirty Harris invited Boone to join the pack train. So Boone traveled around with the pack train through the winter, and they were traveling through Vancouver in the spring of 1863 when Boone, riding high in the hog, heading to pick up his buried treasure, came face to face with old W.T. Collinson who immediately recognized him as the triple murderer and the man who had stalked him down and stole his coin purse the year before. Right. Now Boone really wanted to shoot Collinson real bad, but (laughs) Collinson was all surrounded by people. It was a busy street. And then to make matters worse, Collinson was like, hey, hey, that's Boone Helm. So Boone jumps off the train, runs away before people could assemble a posse. And then out of loyalty... And brotherhood, Dirty Harris 
took off with Boone, leaving his pack train behind. And off again, Boonhelm went into the wild. Oh, come on, Dirty Harry. The original Dirty Harry. Dirty Harris, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's <laughs> Colin said it was slick, though. He knew he couldn't catch Boone out in the woods, but he also knew Boone had buried the gold somewhere between Antler Creek and Canal Forks. So he rode to a nearby military fort to report his story. And the military was way sleeker than the posse operation, so it took off like a well-oiled machine to mm-hmm. head Boone off at the pass. I mean, the posse operation is just like whatever like drunk has nothing better to do, that, right? Really, or yeah. someone who really like <laughs> thinks they're like some self-righteous guy. It's like, I'm doing the right thing! Well, I think that's why Boone's been murdering people for like 15 <laughs> years, 20 years at this point. <laughs> He does, nobody can catch him. Yeah, okay. So they go out to look for him, but no one can find them at all. And they couldn't understand how they these guys could survive such a long distance without supplies. There was really bad hunting in the area. There's nothing to sustain you, and weeks passed with nothing. The British thought that he was probably dead in the woods somewhere, but then some trappers came to town saying they'd seen two men walking north along a riverbed looking like they're trying to maybe avoid detection, maybe not leave a scent for dogs, something Mm -hmm. like that. So following that lead, authorities eventually find Boone and they find him alone and starving. All on guard, they're like, what is this? Is this an ambush? Where's Dirty Harris? And Boone replied, why? Do you suppose that I'm a fool enough to starve to death when I can help it? I ate him up, of course. (laughs) He's like picking his teeth (laughs) with his pinky bone or something. They chained him up and marched him back to Fort Yale where he was deported back to the U.S. If he ever came back, he'd be hung for the murders at Antler Creek. Then Boonhelm was sent to a prison in Port Townsend, Washington. Which is still a pretty crazy place to this day. Yeah. The warden was warned to keep special eyes on Boone, but he didn't. The prison was overcrowded. Boone was able to get himself a knife and a garden trowel from the prison garden and dug his ass right out of prison (laughs) before he was even officially sentenced. He left a pile of rags on his bed and guards didn't notice he was gone for three whole days. Oh, my God. And he went into the woods, out in the wilderness again, traveling south, murdering people and taking their stuff until he was well-armed and wearing a suit, crossing over into California astride his brand new horse. But he found even in San Francisco, his reputation preceded him. He really was starting to you know, catch a name for himself. Sure. He figured authorities were sweeping south to find him. So Boone decided to get freaky with it and head back north. (laughs) Back to his Mm -hmm. old stomping grounds in Oregon. Yeah, let's return to the scene of the crime, baby. Yeah. Then when he got there, he realized it had changed. It was totally built up. There weren't any outlaws to run with. The law was in full force. The roads were well-traveled. No little towns to terrorize without impunity. So he tried to go further north into Canada, but was caught by bounty hunters at the border and taken to Portland where he was held in isolation for six months. Wow. Yeah, I guess all that gold mining, people actually started using that gold to like build towns and roads and police forces yeah, and like yeah. have things now. So he came out skin and bones, blinded by daylight, and was taken by stagecoach to Florence to stand trial for the murder of Dutch Fred. 
So this next part is pretty crazy, but it's in a lot of newspaper accounts about what happened. Okay. <laughs> so it's either definitely true or just a really good rumor. Well, he was met in Florence, Oregon by his rich brother from Texas who went by Tex Helm or Old Tex. Boone had apparently written Tex earlier from prison with a story about sort of accidentally shooting someone in Florence and asking for help. So Tex had blown into town. He had made all this money in Texas Mm -hmm. and paid off or scared everyone who had been at the saloon that night into dropping their testimony. So when the Dutch Fred murder case came to trial, the whole thing fell apart and Boone Helm totally walked free. Wow, damn. (laughs) And again... Boone ran off into the wilderness. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't go with his brother, huh? His brother, I guess, tried to take him. This is according to Ryan Green and was like, you can come back with me and work in Texas or I'll sponsor you to join the Confederate Army. And so you won't like you can have a higher rank, I guess. Okay. I think there's something with that. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll think about it, dude. And then just like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> took off into the woods to do ba do ba do do ba do do so this is our last leg of Boonhelm's journey no pun intended I assume oh no <laughs> <laughs> after word got out about his stint in Portland in jail and then his Florence murder charges being dropped all the bounties on Boone's head were canceled so he basically was free and clear to roam the Pacific Northwest once again. Mm-hmm. He killed at least six people over about six months and then headed into Montana territory where he had heard things were still kind of outlawy, like hopefully, right? There was a gang of highway robbers operating in Montana called the Innocents, bigger than any law that was out there. Oh, whoa. That's a good-ass name for a gang, the yeah. Innocents. Now, the Innocents weren't some smash-and-grab, Boonhelm chaos situation. Mm-hmm. They were actually impressively organized. Some would say, like, suspiciously so. so. The organization was huge with a tiered rank system, kind of mafia-esque, led by a mysterious criminal kingpin and his tight inner circle that most of the people who worked for him had never they'd never even seen their boss. Oh man, this is like a yeah, this is like a real life western movie. Montana was at the height of its gold rush and Grasshopper Creek was the epicenter of the mining. So the innocents operated in the area around Grasshopper Creek between Bannock and Virginia City. And in that stretch alone, the innocents were suspected of committing around 100 murders. Mm. They had little groups around the state that monitored the shipments of gold coming out of the mines. And then they used a complicated system of codes like knotting their ties in a specific way to communicate with each other about the gold and then use the system to steal these huge shipments. So Boone was not a man of subtleties. He went into (laughs) Montana, saw a wagon full of gold and attacked it. (laughs) And the innocents slipped in and were like, no, bro, you have to calm down. (laughs) They knew, though, who Boone was, Uh and they were really impressed with his reputation. But they were also very, very slick and not trying to deal with any wild-ass character. If he wanted to hang around, he would have to play ball. And 
the guys that intercepted him felt like they were too low level to make the call as to what to do with someone like Boone. So they took him to a safe house to meet some higher ups and they all decided basically that he would have a job interview. (laughs) (laughs) After which he would either be exiled, killed or taken in. Man, shout out to any listener out there who's really trying to get a job right now, and it feels like those are the outcomes. Also, you know, it's like I know, man, the stakes feel high these days. You know, it's like give me that job, I need it. Don't kill me. So they drove him about seventy miles from Virginia City to Bannock, even though they've patted him down. Boone still had two hidden pistols, mm-hmm. and said he was planning to take their leader hostage if things went sideways. So he entered the Bannock Saloon to wait for this mysterious kingpin, all pins and needles. Mm-hmm. And the sheriff, Sheriff Henry Plummer, came by and introduced himself and then just sat at a nearby table. So the kingpin didn't show up. Boone got wasted and he started telling stories. He was the star <laughs> of the show. He was bragging about murdering and eating folks up until the point he passed out in the bar. And he woke up hungover in the sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. And there was Sheriff Plummer ready to invite Boone Helm into his gang. Oh, damn. The sheriff is the is the leader. Twist. <laughs> yeah. This is a real-ass cowboy movie. <laughs> it's so crazy. So Sheriff Henry Plummer was a really interesting guy. He was elected sheriff of Bannock the same year Boone Helm came into town. So Plummer, as like a 19-year-old, came out to California for the gold rush around 1852. He made a bunch of money. He was really successful. And by 1856, around the age of 24, he was elected sheriff of Nevada City in California. The next year, he shot a man in what he claimed was self-defense. And this is funny, given what you said about Boone Helm's wife, right, and their divorce. Because basically what happened was Plummer was protecting a woman from her super abusive husband. Mm -hmm. And he came in after her and Plummer shot the man dead. And everyone was like, you should not have gotten involved with Mm, that marriage, right? So he said- The government should not be putting their nose in the affairs of husband and wife. So he claimed it was self-defense. But they didn't buy it, and he got 10 years in San Quentin. Damn. Two years later, he enough people had written letters in kind of supporting him that he was pardoned. So he got out and then immediately shot a man during a citizen's arrest okay. and ended up being banished from California. Okay. <laughs> then he went to Washington Territory to mine for gold. He shot another man up there and then was banished from Washington. And from there, he was just headed home. To his childhood home in Maine when he was traveling through Montana and met his future wife. So they got married and they moved to Bannock to mine for gold. And in January 1863, this guy who was in love with Plummer's wife came in and started fighting with him in a bar. And Plummer shot that man to death in this crowded bar in what he says is self-defense. And this time... The town was all like, hell yes. You know, Plummer had really found his people. Mm-hmm. And he was elected sheriff of Bannock in March of 1863. <laughs> it's like, <just> <laughs> body still smoking on the ground. They're like, three he's months our, later. He's our sheriff, baby. They were like, we love this guy. So he's 
elected sheriff of Bannock in March 1863, and then the murders in and around Bannock inexplicably skyrocketed. So Plummer went from beloved sheriff to mastermind of a gold-stealing, murdering mega gang in the span of a few months. Wow. That's crazy. And now he's just, he meets this cannibal who has an obviously crippling addiction to gambling and alcohol. <laughs> this guy's a complete mess. And he's like, I love this guy. You're in. Well, and Plummer had all this experience being sheriff. You know, this is his yeah. second run. And so he was just using all of his experience to sort of hide all his crimes. He was really sure. good at avoiding knowing what the law was going to do and avoiding the law. Well, he is the law. I guess I'm also just suggesting that it seems to be a shocking lack of like judgment of character. Oh yeah. I get, I get what you're saying. I mean, I think that he's wild ass. <laughs> I think it was like, yeah, Boone helps in our gang. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see which one is going to kill the other one. <laughs> well, for months, Boone Helm hung out in the inner circle of Henry Plummer, killing miners and mm -hmm. stealing gold. He developed a reputation for unprecedented violence, even amongst the innocents. Horrible. And then in December 1863, everyone was totally fed up. The miners and leaders in Virginia City and Bannock were fed up with the innocent and started their own protection group, the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch. And they were also very violent. Sure. The Vigilance Committee went to work collecting names of gang members, torturing and imprisoning and hanging bandits and running folks out of town. Finally, the Alder Gulch vigilantes got Sheriff Plummer's name from a bandit and the jig was up. And mm. I believe on Plummer's body, like when they when they captured him, mm -hmm. they found a list of 83 innocents, the names of all these people. So it was a huge bust. Oh, yeah. Henry Plummer was captured January 10th, 1864 and hung. Boone Helm was captured four days later in Virginia City. They surprised him while he was getting hammered in a saloon. <laughs> according to the Montana Post, when Boone According to the Montana Post, when Boone Helm was being tried, he said, quote, I am as innocent as a babe unborn. I never killed anyone or robbed or defrauded any man. I'm willing to swear it on the Bible. And then he kissed the Bible, quote, most impressively. <laughs> Does that mean with tongue? I think, I don't the know. The insides of his lips? <laughs> it must have been really impressive. <laughs> and then he tried to blame everything on fellow innocent Jack Gallagher, who overheard Boone and then tried to fight him. So they did like separate. Sure. Of course. Yeah, right. He's like, I've never killed anyone. He's like killing Jack Gallagher within four minutes. <laughs> January 14th at 4 p.m., Boone Helm was brought to the town square along with four other gang members. The Alder Gulch vigilantes had set up a makeshift gallows where they could hang all five men at the same time. <laughs> so drastic. Yeah. So they set up this long beam with nooses hanging down and then crates for the men to stand on. And one thing to remember is that, you know, they're going to hang them by kicking the crates out from underneath their feet. But on a gallows, you drop into a pit and most likely your neck breaks. But yeah. in this situation, there's not enough drop. So people are just strangling. Yeah, right. Just a slow strangulation. Yeah. 
3,000 people came to watch the hangings. What? I pictured this being a town of like 20 people. Well, it's like everybody. I mean, it was this type of thing where, you know, miners, for all of the boozing and whoring and all that kind of stuff that they were doing, they're really the this backbone sure. you know, of, of building. Industry. Yeah, whole, right. right. And people definitely felt that way about it. I mean, they were the people that were bringing the money into the town. Sure, I get it. So people really supported the miners and they, it was like pretty bad. They killed a lot of people. Yeah. This was like the Super Bowl. It was. And when you look up this event, yeah. specifically this hanging, yeah. it's in newspapers on Sundays for like the next decade. They're like, remember on this day, <laughs> la, da, 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 da. And they're like, it was a mighty good time. <laughs> it's hilarious. They just talk about it forever. I was like, what? It's like, <laughs> 1890, 20 years later. Hilarious. So the semi-weekly Wisconsin reported that during the hanging, quote, Boonhelm was one of the worst of the clan, was hilarious and boisterous in the extreme. He called for whiskey several times, which was given to him. And as he swung off, he hurrahed for Jeff Davis in the most approved rebel style. And that's Jefferson Davis because he's like super... With the Confederates. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know who Jefferson D- Davis is, but I love the most approved style. He's the first and only president of the Confederate States. <laughs> okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. So, uh, you know, Boone's final words were also just, just he just continued to be horrible to the very last second. Well, actually, this is what happened okay. in his very final words. Okay. The vigilantes kicked the crates out from under each of the men one by one. They're all like crying or yelling for people or like screaming like expletives, right? And apparently when they got to Boone Helm, he, he yelled to the man who was strangling next to him, the one that he tried to rat out, kick away, Jack, it's my turn next. I'll be in hell with you in a minute. And then he said, every man for his principles. Hurrah for Jeff Davis. Let her rip. And then instead of kicking the box off, he just jumped them off the box himself. Oh, damn. And strangled himself. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Let her rip. <laughs> Coming in hot. Let's go, hell. Just cannonballing into the into Hades. Yeah. Unbelievable. They loved those last words. That was in newspapers everywhere in the country for like 10 years. (laughs) Unreal. All right. Yeah. So that's the guy, man. (laughs) I found some other kind of interesting stuff. Like Uh there is a few articles about his brothers just kept being crazy. So like Tex, old Tex died. He broke his neck getting buck from a stallion. And then Mm. his other brother around the same year, uh, got in trouble for stabbing a bunch of people. <laughs> and then back in Missouri, his uh-huh. little baby daughter grew up and then made the papers for being Helm's daughter and then running off on her husband. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that poor girl. She didn't deserve that. Well, she found true love. Okay, good. You're right. You're right. She did deserve that. Hopefully that's it. Let's spin it that way. Yeah. So, wild-ass family, man. <laughs> I love how this story just is a real life account of the ultimate Wild West villain. 
You know, <laughs> just absolutely, completely maniacal, bloodthirsty, dumb, you know, but resourceful, the whole thing, right? But what the story lacks is the equivalent of that, but the good guy, which is what all the stupid cowboy movies are about. The movies are never about this guy. The movies are always about the good guy that's able to stop all of that. Yeah, yeah. And I just am like... Or a redeemable bad guy or something. Yeah, you know? Yeah. I know, it's pretty funny. I mean, I'm sure they were out there, but everybody in this story is like medium. <laughs> and then you get to the sheriff. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, I got evil pretty quick. <laughs> Uh, I guess that's just the story of, uh, you know, all of us. I feel like it's very much like a a story about being a human. Yep, we all got evil pretty quick. And some of us aren't great at surviving out in the wilderness. Most of us aren't. Yeah. We're all just going to die. Okay. Well, (laughs) sweet dreams, kids. Thank you for listening to Muriel's Murders. It's an honor to have you tuning in. Find us on social media. Get in touch. Our DMs are open, and sometimes it takes a while for us to read them and respond, uh, but it really does mean the world when you guys reach out. We want to spend special love shout-outs to Retha, Possum, Sammy and Harper, Nicole, Haley, and Lenora, sending you all very much love in these times. If you like what we do, please support the podcast by subscribing to our Patreon or directly through the Muriel's Murders feed on Spotify. Links are in the episode description of this episode right now. We just released a Truman Capote-themed two-parter as a companion piece to Reverend Willie Maxwell episode, so go check them out. Mm-hmm. Muriel did the research. I'm not supposed to read that Muriel part. did the research, <laughs> writing and hosting. I did the engineering, editing, and co-hosting. This podcast is homemade in the depths of our Los Angeles apartment. Mario Castellini did the music. Find more of him in the show notes of this episode. All right, that's it. All right. Sleep tight. Peace Don't be with you. Nightmares. Bye. <laughs>